wrestling fans, this Friday, Wrestling Changed My Life is hosting a happy hour in Coralville, Iowa, right before Penn State wrestles Iowa. It's from 4 to 7 p.m. this Friday at The Vine in Coralville, Iowa. It's walking distance to Carver Hawkeye. Get free drinks, free food, and free merch this Friday at the happy hour. We're co-hosting with Stalemates, who's one of the great uh, people in media right now in the, in the wrestling world. This Friday, 4 to 7 p.m. at The Vine in Iowa City. We're co-hosting a happy hour with Stalemates. Be there or be square. Now let's get to the episode. So self-awareness is could well be the greatest attribute that I took away from the lack of achievement that I really set out for myself to have in college. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience, Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, Natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Welcome to Wrestling Changed My Life, presented by Spartan Combat. The Spartan Combat Nationals are returning to Jacksonville, Florida this April 8th through the 10th. Compete for the coolest trophy in wrestling at the Spartan Combat Nationals. Registration is now open, SpartanCombat.com. Folks, our guest today is Ira Lubert. He's a business leader, a philanthropist, and one of the key supporters of Penn State Wrestling. He was actually part of the hiring committee that brought Cale Sanderson from Iowa State to Penn State. And as I said, just a, a real titan of industry. He spent you know, 20, 30 years in private equity. And, man, what a, uh, what a mind for business and success. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get right to it, as Ira's only done a handful of interviews that I know of. This is the first podcast that he's done, at least that I could find. So let's get right to it. Before we do, Fan of the Week goes to our friend Cameron it's the great Cambino on Instagram. Really appreciate the support. He's a good time and man from Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you so much for the support. And that's it, folks. Let's get to the interview with Ira Lubert. Ira Lubert, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you. I wanted to start with a commencement speech you gave in 2002. And really the gist of this speech was fail early, fail often. And that's uh, one of the the greatest things you could wish for this class. I just wanted to know, how'd you come to that philosophy? It actually was a validation of my life, you know, to be honest with you. Like uh, I had always achieved successes in high school and success came pretty easy for me in high school. But then when I went to college and uh, I didn't achieve my uh, sports objectives, if you will. 
So uh, no matter how hard I worked at it, I still didn't achieve the accomplishments that I, or the goals that I set out for myself. And it wasn't until later that I learned that from those failures, if you will, um, I, it, it really helped me in later life um, and taught me lessons to follow that I subscribed to and used later in life. And how long did it take you from graduating Penn State to get that perspective so that you could use it for good? You know, I would say four, five, six years um, after college, I started to work for IBM. Uh, and I, it just started to hit me after that. Um, the, the attributes of, you know, in life, no matter how hard you prepare, um, work hard, you could have all of those attributes, but sometimes you just don't achieve your objectives just happens. Um, but really taking an inventory of the byproducts of those attributes is what really helped me in later life. Uh, and it, it, it really set the tone, if you will, or the foundation, if you will, for how I created both my personal life and my business life going forward. And it's one of those byproducts, I, I got to think, has to be self-awareness is that something that you picked up from failure? And if so, how has that helped you throughout your career? It's a great question. So self-awareness is, could well be the greatest attribute that I took away from the lack of achievement that I really set out for myself to have in college. And that self-awareness, I also equate to something taking a self-inventory of your basic strengths and weaknesses. You hear from everybody and you hear your whole life you know, identify your weaknesses, work hard and do better. Well, I found that most people's, including my own, basic personality traits don't change. You tend to do what you do well. You tend to migrate to that. And you tend to avoid what you don't like to do or do that well. So to me, understanding that and taking an in inventory of my strengths and my weaknesses early on in my career was really the greatest uh, accomplishment that I've had early on. And what it helped me to do was formulate a strategy that could differentiate myself to others in my business that played to my strengths and really supplemented my weaknesses. And what came of that was a business strategy that very few people have deployed over the years. Uh, that helped differentiate my business strategy to that of other people or other businesses. And as I reflect back over the 50, 60 years I've done it, it's really, it's really paid great dividends. And are you someone that believes in doubling down on your strengths or fixing the weaknesses? Well, again, I fix the weaknesses by supplementing my weaknesses with people who are great at doing the things that I don't do well. Mm. So to say to you that I'm, you know, I'm an impatient person, so I'm going to learn to be patient, you know, in, at least in my case, I, I found early on I wasn't going to be able to accomplish that. I can be a little more patient, but or let me say this, I'm not a great people manager, so I could learn to be a better manager, but in my case, it would have taken away a lot of time from doing the things I really do well. So I partner with people instead of employ people. And in partnering with people, I'm partnering with people that through their success comes my success. Mm. 
and they're managing the people. So if I were to tell you that, and again, this is just an educated guess, but indirectly, indirectly, I'm responsible for tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of employees, but I only manage directly two people in my enterprise, two people, my executive assistant, Doris, and the, uh, and the gentleman who runs my family office, Rob. But in addition to that, I have well in excess of 100 partners. And they don't work for me. They're my partners. They own a very percentage of a, an investment um, that, that I have. And they run the business. Mm-hmm. So I don't run the business day to day or the real estate investment, or the company, they do. And that's how I built my enterprise, having these 80, 100 people that I've invested with over the years, and all the people roll up to them, allowing me, because I've also found early in my career that personnel issues, people issues, take the most time and the most stress. So if you're running, if you're, and I've met a lot of people over my life, you're running multi-hundred million dollar companies, that's a tremendous achievement for you as the CEO. But a lot of your time is spent managing people-related issues, mm. which might, might supplant you from being able to do much more or grow the business even greater. And I would submit, again, there is no one perfect path to success. I'm just just only sharing my path. Uh, In no way am I advocating that other people's paths aren't as good or better. But this was a path I chose, which in essence is a little unique. I don't think you'll hear a lot of examples like this. But based on the inventory I took of my strengths and weaknesses in my 20s, I felt this was the best path for me. And Thank God, as I reflect back over it at 70, soon to be 72 years old, it's worked out phenomenally well for me. Now, I often wondered, what if I were to just start one company? Could I have done better? Mm -hmm. I'll never know the answer to that question. But my gut tells me not even close because of the what I'll call, frankly, the negative attributes or weaknesses that I have, I think would have held me back from achieving the kind of success that I've achieved. And by the way, probably more important than the success is the byproduct of the success. Think about if you were to interview a lot of my investors or a lot of my partners, you know, they are, for the most part, most of them are very grateful and very appreciative of the investment and the partnership. Mm-hmm that through their success came my success, but I was an enabler that allowed a lot of these folks to get into business. I funded their business. I helped grow their business through mentoring. And and it was frankly very mutual, but they would acknowledge that without that, they wouldn't be where they are today. And I get a lot of pleasure out out of seeing the fulfillment of these folks' successes. Yeah, that's such a, uh, just an interesting approach, like like you've mentioned, and I really love it because it's not something you hear every day. And you know the the core of it's self awareness, and a lot of that early discovery I have to imagine happened on the IBM sales floor, 
I'm a sales guy myself. One of my mentors, uh, or he's not really a mentor, but I look up to him as one. Jim Steele, he started at IBM during that same time selling IBM mainframes on Wall Street. Tell us about the early days at IBM in the you know, selling mainframes. Yeah, so I wasn't selling mainframes, but I probably went through a very similar process as your friend and mentor, Jim. Um, I was the in the first class of what was going to be the mid-size computers called the System 3 and the System 32 in 1973. And Endicott New York was a training class. And I remember like it was yesterday, was the I'm sure you said it to your friend as well. The instructor said, look to your left, look to your right. One of those folks won't be here at the end of the formal one-year training process, which was a process that had you go for four weeks in and then four weeks at the office, then back for six weeks, then back at the office. And, you know, I'm literally sitting next to, on one side of me, I'll never forget, was someone who graduated from Princeton and one graduated from Harvard. And it was a pretty good class. And, uh, you know, I finished number one in that class, went on to be the number one salesman in the region as what they call the rookie of the year. And I observed why a lot of those folks didn't do as well. Not a lot, but some of those folks didn't do as well. Academically, they were light years ahead of me, smarter than me, better prepared than me. But what they lacked was the mental preparation, working through adversity um, that you got from wrestling. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least I got in a large way from wrestling. The basic preparedness, the pressure, the mental toughness, all the things you had to do, thinking fast on your feet. I saw that some of these folks didn't have that. They could look up the answer, find the answer. Um, But it was that kind of preparedness under pressure that I think uh, thankfully allowed me to participate and achieve a little bit better than they did. Uh, And as I reflected back on that, that I got a lot of that from wrestling. And quite frankly, as I said, to be any of this, not achieving my athletic goals and how I responded to that. Mm-hmm. And it was just very key to me in forming my career in business. And when you say preparedness under pressure, what does that mean to you? Well, like in these classes, they would have you get up in front of the class and do a, a you know, you would be selling something to a, to one of the um, instructors on the fly. They mm-hmm. would just, and how you handle, they throw you objections in your face and you'd have to respond to it and things of that nature. And when I went out and became a salesperson for IBM, I had the same thing to handle. And I went on to become the, as I said, the rookie of the year and then became the number one salesman as president of the 100% club out of 4,600 and some people, recognized as the number one person, and then went into my a couple other businesses and then my own businesses. And I, I just believed that it was a lot of the wrestling attributes that prepared me for this that allowed me to keep moving you know goal setting and discipline and all the other things that a lot of people have also was part of it as well and you know quite honestly the timing was good as well i had to i tell my kids that when i started in the early 70s i call it the wind was at my back there was a lot of growth in the economy which also was very helpful the kids today don't have it quite as good as we had it back then Right. So that's, that's, you know, what it did for me. Yeah. And I, you know, anyone who listens to this show knows I'm, I'm in software sales and uh, like you got into a class uh, and, and kind of worked my way up from there. And I just love 
the application of wrestling for sales. What did you pick up from those earlier as an IBM that you still use today or you use throughout the years when, when raising funds or, or, or doing deals? Well, the, I'll give you, I, I might be a little long-winded, but I'm a, I'm a key believer in two attributes. One is differentiation and two is barrier to entry. So I try that when I make an investment, today my life is made up of investing. I invest in real estate, debt funds, private equity, distressed companies. That's what my holding company does. And when I do the analysis or the due diligence to determine whether I want to make that investment, other than making sure that the, it, the partner is aligned with me, and I can go into that later what that means, I want to make sure the company has either, it's either differentiated in some way to the competition, or it has something like a barrier to entry. A patent on a product could be a barrier to entry that could stop someone else. A differentiation could be how it's sold versus how something else is sold, a technique, Mm -hmm. if you will. And I look for recurring revenue for me as differentiation. As you in software sales know the attributes of a very high gross margin product, that of a piece of software. So I look for the differentiation in that kind of an aspect um, when I go to make an investment today. And you mentioned you, you'd come back to the being aligned with your partners, but is that one of the partners that is on your side of the deal table or, or a partner in the sense of one of the companies you're going to invest in? It, clearly, it's only in the sense of the people I'm investing in. So if I'm investing in your software company, I want to make sure you are aligned with me. Hmm. Now, you you would have to, if I were looking at your software company, if you owned it to invest, the first thing I would analyze would be you as a partner. And I'd want to make sure I use the term best of breed partner. You'd have to have many quality quality attributes but you have to have these four, minimum these four. I call it jacks or better, or I, I violated this a couple of times in my life, but vastly speaking, I don't violate this. So if you are honest and ethical, and they're not the same thing, by the way, you're committed and capable. Those four attributes, I call that the jacks or better. You're gonna have to have other attributes, but if you don't have any of those four, one of those four missing, Generally speaking, I pass on the investment. Then after, once we get past those attributes, because the most important thing is I want to invest with you. And again, mm-hmm. being a contrarian like I am, I want to make sure I, my differentiation is I might follow in a private equity firm that says to you, I love your company. I want to invest $100 but I need to own a minimum of 51% of your company. That's what most private equity, I mean, I own private equity funds. That's what a lot of my private equity funds would say as well. But through my family office as a contrarian, I would follow those folks in. And this is how I would differentiate myself from them. I would say to you, you know, I just saw the kid from the ABC uh, private equity fund leave. I happen to know who he is. He's a tremendously skilled Wharton MBA, but you know, you're 52 years old. You've run this business for 27 years. Why would you ever want a 27 year old MBA to come in and tell you how to grow your business? 
I want to come in and 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 be able to do that because he's going to own fifty one percent or more of your company, and he's going to control your board. I'd like to come in and own a meaningful but minority piece of your company. I define that as twenty to forty percent. I still will be on your board. I'm going to help you grow it. But you're going to make the major decisions. There's only a couple you can't make without my permission. You can't sell the, you can't give yourself a raise, hire your wife or daughter without my permission. Anything else you want to do, you're the guy running the business day to day. But let me say this to you. I can't pay you the same value that the gentleman who just left offered you because he's going to control your business. So he's paying what I call majority premium. But if you allow me to invest at something between wholesale and that retail price, I'll take you by the arm. I'm going to own a meaningful piece. And by the way, if that piece is 40% and you own 60, and together we grow the business X times, when we sell together, when you decide you really want to sell and we sell, the fact that you own that extra percentage, you're going to end up doing better. But had you sold 49% or 60% to him five years earlier. Now, you hear that presentation. That is clearly a contrarian presentation. And it clearly creates differentiation. Because you might interview 10 private equity firms. But the only pitch you're getting like that is from me. The nine other people aren't saying that to you. That's how I grow my business. That is the the differentiation in the approach. It doesn't resonate for everybody. Mm-hmm. doesn't work all the time, but it's worked enough times that it's been great for me. And when you're looking at those partners and they have to have those four criteria you just mentioned, which of the four do you often see as, as missing amongst a, a founder that otherwise would be a, a great, a great partner for you? Capable. How so? Well, just not experienced enough, doesn't have the skill set, wouldn't take direction well enough to get the skill set, like maybe bringing an advisor to help mm-hmm. that I think is needed to grow it. We might have, a, you know, their personality type might be that they don't believe they need to help. Mm. You know, again, honest and ethical is due diligence. It's binary. Either you are, you aren't. You should be able to determine that through your due diligence. Committed only means if you're worth $10. Will you put a dollar in your own company, right? If you're worth a million dollars, where you are you prepared to put a hundred thousand in? If you're worth that million dollars and don't want to put any money of your own, really, to speak of in that company, you're you're not committed. Mm. That's the differentiation. That's the the definition of that. Man, so the capable is as much as being coachable as it is having experience. Yeah. Wow, absolutely. And before we go to some of the, the folks you rubbed elbows with in the wrestling world, such as Bill Cole and Andy Motter, I have to ask you this. Mid-90s, tech stocks are just booming. You know, Cisco, people think Cisco is going to run the world. But in 97, you get out of the business to get into real estate. How did you come by that decision? Well, I, I actually started in real estate in college. So it always was my first love. I, I started with my, I was, I sold a coin collection that I created in high school for just under $5,000 and later found out I was very fortunate to get an athletic scholarship to Penn State. So I used that $5,000 to buy mobile homes. And those mobile homes, when I was a senior, got sold 
to buy my first couple pieces of real estate in mm-hmm. State College. And I kept investing in real estate from that point on, on a much, you know, as, as I got commission dollars from IBM and then later ITT, I was disciplined enough in my plan to take those excess dollars to continue to invest in great hedges against inflation like real estate and drive the cash flow to keep buying more. That's how I started building my business. Um, so that's what I really did. And so it's really a misnomer. I was working in with these tech companies. And when I eventually left, I went to work for Safeguard Scientifics. And it was Safeguard that the, the founder mentor who's just recently passed away, Pete Musser, he taught me the private equity world, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I he needed someone to, frankly, oversee his real estate business, uh, the company's public company's real estate business, because they eventually went into a company that today is a REIT called Brandywine. Right. So we actually traded. I, I actually oversaw the real estate while he taught me the private equity business. Got it. And then, then it was 97 that I left to concentrate on real estate with Lubert Adler's, our first fund, which today out of our $44 billion in all the funds probably represents about nine of it, nine billion. But I always had the plan to expand that holding company from the real estate, Lubert Adler being the first one, to the eight that we have today, the second being a private equity fund called LLR. Mm-hmm. That is, um, yeah, I was hoping you'd tell the story about the mobile homes that you uh, you bought when there was a housing shortage. And that's, so that kind of was the foundation. And you say with the real estate throughout that time, you mentioned you had a plan both in 97 and then early in your career. I'm just curious, when you look at a plan, is it something you're doing 30 days, five year, 30 days, one year and a five year basis? How does that look to you? Many years, every year, I would write a one year plan and a five-year plan. I did that for many. I don't do it anymore. I mean, I just haven't done it for probably for the last 10 years. But in my you know, late 20s, 30s, and probably mid to late 40s, I would do a one- and five-year plan. And you know, the, the plan was number of investments and achievement on income levels that took me to where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I just felt, and then I would, most people would do a plan that I saw, uh, like, you know, a January plan, I want to lose 20 pounds and come the end of February, they forgot about the plan. By the way, when it comes to weight, me included. But, <laughs> you know, my plan wasn't, it wasn't just enough to do the written plan, which I did. It was breaking the plan down so that you understood what you needed to do on a daily basis to achieve it. Back to IBM, I wanted to be the president of the 100% club in 1975. That was a goal. I was the rookie of the year in 74. I I actually did the due diligence to figure out the guy, I'll never forget his name. His name was Des Crane from Memphis, Tennessee, was the president of the 74 club. And I met him because I was rookie of the year. And I, and I talked with him and met what it was he sold that made him achieve that objective. And based on that, I inflated that number and I divided it by 12 and I, I broke it down to what do I have to do on a daily basis? And then on a monthly basis, I would look back to see how I was doing against the objective. And there were times I was failing miserably. And there were other times I was doing very well against it. And thank God and a little bit of luck and 
I achieved that objective to be the president of the 100% Club in 1975, as I said earlier. But it, to me, it's all about setting goals, understanding strengths and weaknesses, breaking the goals down, and making sure you're monitoring the success of the goal itself. And then that's what how I've run a lot of my businesses even to today. The, the talking with someone who's done it before you, I, I just love that because anywhere I've been, that's been a, something that's really helped me. And obviously you as well, you know, in the podcasting world, Jason Bryant and sales, it's whoever's doing well. And, uh, and you learn from them. And um, the other part about the plan, I'd love to get your thoughts on though, is how are you checking in on it in April, in August, in September? Is it simply knowing the metrics where you need to be for that month? Yeah. So if the plan is a monetary plan as relates to achievement, Break that down. It's 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 the best educated guess you have. It's not exact, right? And you just see how you're doing. So, you know, in 1975, uh, you know, I set a goal of selling 40 computers. Now, a lot easier computers than than your friends sold. I was selling what was called a System 32 computer, hundred thousand dollar type, versus a you know a 500 to a million dollar computer. And I ended up selling 52, the highest ever sold in the history of IBM. It ended up averaging one a week, mm. and um, and and I broke that goal down. And I kind of kind of in the fall of the year, I was ahead of the goal, um, behind the goal a little bit in the first quarter. I remember if memory serves me correctly, but I know later in the year, it, it really worked out well, and I had a lot of momentum and finished off being in selling literally selling fifty two IBM System thirty two computers, and. Um, and it was just the reflection of what you needed to do. Every, how many calls a day, phone calls, how many appointments do you need to make? The, the second thing I did to differentiate myself was under I, in my due diligence, I understood the IBM contract back then. And that contract allowed somebody to sign that contract and not have any financial obligation if they canceled, even up to the day that computer shipped. Well, you know, I think what I did was so different. I explained and showed that to a prospect mm -hmm. and said, I, my sales pitch was completely contrarian and unique. And I would say to the prospect, obviously I don't have enough information and you don't have enough information to order this computer today, mm -hmm. except if you place it on order, there's such a backlog that I can place it on order to start to get built today. And you have no financial obligation. Let me show it to you. And then I'd like to work with you over the next three to four months to determine if this is the right product for you. So guess what? Not everybody, but a lot of people sign that contract in that first, first or second meeting. Some would say, let me see a demonstration first. And a week later, we'd have a demonstration. I'd get them signed a contract. Mm -hmm. And then I never had to ask for the order again. Then I'd work with my systems engineers and myself to understand his business and come four weeks later, eight weeks later, 12 weeks later, we had enough information for him to make an informed decision. And I didn't have to say, do you want to buy it? Mm -hmm. He'd already bought it. And we just then worked the process. Now, you reflect back on that. It sounds very simple. But no, not, I'm not sure anybody else was doing that. And that's really a, that is a key differentiator to how everyone else looks at the same issue. Yeah. Or you might call it a contrarian approach, but it was the way you approach the approach, meaning finding a way that's different in itself is work in process. 
And I was very fortunate to take the time to study that contract and validate that that was true. Now they've since changed that. It's another story for another day. Right. That contract was long changed when they saw how I did it, but it was, that's how I did it. Regardless of if it's changed though, to your point, it's just about having competency in the moment of what you're doing and really, right. you know, knowing everything there is to know. Uh, um, last thing on the plane piece, when you look at your daily routine, I understand you're someone who ran three miles a day for decades. Was there anything else you did on a daily basis that you think was a unique approach? I don't think, I mean, I was very disciplined at work. Um, never took it for granted. Uh, always wanted to make sure that I, I, I took tremendous responsibility in two things. One, and still to this day, one, when I raise money from investors, mm -hmm. I, I have a tremendous fiduciary obligation to make sure that I treat their capital with tremendous respect to the point where I would always put their money ahead of mine. That was so important to me. And second, I truly treat partners as partners. And my job is to help a partner realize their objectives and goals. And so if you ask people, they'll say to you that it's rare that if someone calls me or emails me, they don't hear back from me in that day, even today. I mean, those, and that in itself is a differentiator that I try to live by. So those are a couple of things that I built my business around and I, it stayed with me and will till I die. How, when you look at the differentiation, that is something that's so key to you. And as we shift to wrestling, I'm so curious when you, when you were a uh, you know, state champ in New Jersey uh, and you got introduced to wrestling in 1966 from a football coach said, go out for it. And uh, you know, you, you ended up going to Penn state, but how did Penn state differentiate itself for you? Because I understand that at the time they had, you know, the great Dave Joyner there and that's uh, someone you had a huge history with even to this day. But what was it about Penn State for you? Well, it, it ended up being relationship oriented, to be honest. I was offered scholarships at other schools, but Rich Lorenzo, who ended up becoming the head coach, but he was he's four years older than I am. He grew up in the town I grew up in. He used to come in. I started wrestling, as you probably know, as a sophomore in high school. And he'd come in over Christmas and work out. And that's where I met him. He was very helpful to me, teaching me wrestling. And then my junior year, he actually got me. He knew I was, I needed to get stronger and do a lot of things that I didn't recognize. And he actually gave me a job on his farm. And I worked on his farm junior and senior year, really getting to know him. He unofficially got me up to Penn State, where I first met Andy Motter as a sophomore. And stayed close to the school. And I think the advantage back way back then, being able to see a school like Penn State numerous times, getting to know the attributes of Rich Lorenzo, um, meeting the team and the coaches, you know, really was great. And I got rejected to Penn State the first two times I applied academically. So they helped me get in. I um, was fortunate enough to do that. And that so that to me isn't really a differentiator it was more of a relationship that got me there. And I've, and, and let's be candid, you know, David Joyner beat me out, had tremendous success in both football and wrestling, but Penn state stayed with me. They didn't take my scholarship. They were, they were just so good and 
just the way their culture is that I never forgot that. And obviously one of the main drivers as to why I got so involved with Penn State, both with my time, my dollars uh, over these years. That is, that's amazing to see that, especially now when you look at, you know, kids are transferring, if someone beats them out, scholarships are being pulled, you know, so it's definitely a two-way street, both athletes and coaches in terms of, you know, sometimes commitments change. You know, the, the leader of that program was Bill Cole, one of my favorite people to talk about, you know, national champ for you and I, war hero on D-Day. Tell us about Bill Cole's philosophy. Yeah, just a great human being. Bill was a phenomenal teacher. We couldn't help but learn from Bill. Just a down-to-earth, real family-oriented guy. Obviously, people know his son, who's incredibly successful, Robbie. And Chris wrestled with me, the older brother. Um, and he just couldn't help. He was an incredible technician. Couldn't help him learn from him. And really, the first, the first non-Penn State coach for wrestling that they turned to, which mm. may be a story for another day, but since him, then it was pretty much all Penn Staters until Cal Sanderson. And um, as you know, I was a little bit involved with Cal. Yeah. So um, just Bill was just great. And I think made the first tremendous stride for Penn State to start to become nationally recognized. And uh, he just did a great job. In his approach, would you say it was more of a, you know, tough guy kind of thing or soft, you know, carry a big stick or, you know, the saying how it goes? Yeah, I, I would say he was more of a tough guy than a soft stick, but really had your best interest at heart, really wanted you to be successful, really worked at it. I mean, he was just dedicated to the position. And as you might know that, ironically, Rich became the assistant coach upon graduation when George Edwards went on to Virginia. So I was very fortunate that, you know, Rich was a good friend, really taught me a lot about wrestling through high school. And then lo and behold, he ends up being my freshman coach, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you have that kind of history, you know, it's not hard to understand why I've become so loyal to the university. Yeah. I mean, especially when, you think about over all those years, you know, people think about Kale Sanderson now as, you know, obviously one of the great Penn State coaches, but man, in the late 80s and early 90s, Penn State was giving Iowa everything they could handle. They took him out a couple times in big dual meets, one of which at Carver, and uh, Rich Lorenzo was the head coach of those teams. And, and, and he Fritz, was. Yeah. He was, John Fritz, but mostly Rich was the one who beat him. In fact, I'll tell you a funny little story. You know, I don't know him well, but Dan Gable once called me years and years and years ago. Uh, asking if I'd be helpful in some area. And I told him I would. And he said to me, as he started the call, he said, you know, I, I lost one match at Carver. I wonder if you could remember what that match was. <laughs> I said, Dan, it was Penn State. I was there. I mean, <laughs> and that's how we started the conversation. So, you know, just it's really unique to wrestlers, certain things you don't forget. So, yeah, Rich, Rich built some phenomenal teams along the way. So did Johnny. But Rich really had the teams and could really compete with Iowa, but just, you know, again, maybe it's resources that I thought were lacking and others thought were lacking a wrestling room. Yeah. You know, things of that nature, we can spend time on what those attributes were, but we needed to take the next step up and Kale has certainly delivered that in spades, you know? So I mean, 
I mean, uh, unbelievable. I just want to go back to Rich real quick. That first win in 86 at Rec Hall, they weren't even in the Big Ten yet. So this is, a, an, a, I don't know if it was the EIWA or whatever it was. This is some, you know, East Coast small school team who's coming here and knocking off the Hawks. That, I just, uh, yeah. you know, bit of a Gable historian, and I, and I love those, that, that, those dual meets. That was 86, and uh, the other one was yeah. at Carvard in the 90s. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. we got it. But Rich's first year, he had a losing season. His very first year as head coach. Till he got his guys, his way, his techniques, then you're you're amplifying the results he had three, four years into the process. Right. Wow. And he laid the groundwork. And obviously the wrestling room is the Rich Lorenzo facility. And obviously you were instrumental in that. And then we come to 2009. I, I get chills even talking about it. Kale Sanderson's 29. And he's in his first three years coaching. He's put 10 at the NCAs all three years. And no one in the world thought he would leave Iowa State. I hear that obviously he applied. You make a trip out there. What's your first impression of meeting with Kale when he's 29 years old, head coach at Iowa State? Truly amazed at the level of maturity past his years. I was so impressed with that interview. I'll, I'll never forget it as long as I live. And by the way, you know, I was very fortunate that the then athletic director and president asked me to be on that committee, very mm -hmm. appreciative of that. And we had a committee of, I think, five people. And we set up a time to go meet Kale at a hotel um, in a little town next to Ames, Iowa. And there were some on the committee that thought that Kale's truly wasn't that interested, that he wanted to maybe get a better opportunity for himself at Iowa State. I was very vocal that I didn't believe that was the case. And it was through a lot of the, I used a lot of the same techniques and questioning with Kale that day that I do with investing. And, you know, I asked him point blank in that meeting what, you know, why he'd want to come to Penn State. And he, you know, he in essence told us, he said, I want to come to a place that has great academic academic history, which Penn State does. Mm -hmm. Geographically, Penn State's in the middle of the hottest high school wrestling in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland. He said that you need facilities, and I'm hopeful that alumni like you will help that happen over time. And then he said, what's also you need is leadership, which I, I believe I can bring. And he said those four attributes I really believe over time I can build a powerhouse here. And that really resonated with me. I mean, he was very sincere, great eye contact, no sell, no selling, just really, he was just so, so ahead of his time from a maturity perspective that on the way home on the plane, I said to the guys, this is our guy and we need to bring him home. And thank God we did. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, just year two, an NCAA title, and the rest is history. We're living in the uh, the, the Kale Sanderson era, and we will for you know, decades more. Who knows how much longer? But um, you know, just going back to that meeting, you think at 29 years old, someone to have that kind of maturity and to be able to say it so sincerely in front of folks, you know, of, of your business acumen is incredible. Um, so when you look at those four categories you mentioned earlier, you know, I think college wrestling, college coaching, probably the one that gets people in the most trouble is the ethics, right? Around recruiting. And, um, and that was one where he was just off the charts in, in your opinion. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He was on, I mean, talk about it, honest, ethical, committed and capable, you know, he, he had all those attributes in spades, all of them, 
and look what's happened. I, by the way, I, I was blown away, so happy when he wanted his second year. No one, I, I shouldn't speak for other people. I never thought he was going to win it in the second year. Right. But just if you look at the caliber of the recruits he gets over the years and the kind of people they are, I mean, they're great athletes. There's a lot of great athletes out there, but he really helps them become great young men. Yeah. Um, and that's really a tribute to him and his staff, it really is. One of my favorite things about Kale is that his coaches could all be head coaches. <laughs> you know, his brother obviously was a head coach at Utah Valley, I believe it was. Uh, yep. Cunningham, I mean, geez, could be a head coach anywhere. And uh, the list goes on and on. And so he just surrounds himself with those kind of people. Yeah. And they want to stay there. I mean, who knows how long, but I mean, guys like Casey, to your point, they could be head coaches in a lot of places. Yeah. But this is a great environment for them. They, they do a great service for the university, for the community, for the young men that they recruit. I mean, it's just, and, and I think they get a lot of fulfillment and satisfaction out of it as well, where frankly, they wouldn't be there because they could be anywhere. Um, so, you know, I'm, I feel extremely proud that in such a little way, I had something to do with this, you know, taking place. It's, you know, something I'll, I'll enjoy for the rest of my life. I mean, definitely one of the most important moments in wrestling history. If you, and if you look back on it, kind of like when, you know, Gable was supposed to coach at Iowa state and, you know, John Marks recruited him away to Iowa and, you know, then the rest is history, right? So very similar story. And it's just incredible to have the honor to have you on the show and, and speak to us. Um, last thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, when you look at, you know, we've talked about wrestling, how it's changed your life. I'm not going to ask you that question, but just in general, when you look at um, business partners that you're mentoring, what are some of the things that the, the 30 year olds, the 40 year olds are really lacking that you're able to help guide them on or educate them on that? Maybe some of our listeners say, Hey, that's me. I need to up my game. What can I do? And what do you see there? Well, that's a great question. I, I think there's different, different answers. I mean, based on the partner, sure. based on how old they are, but 30 and 40 year olds. First of all, I try to emphasize to every one of my partners that not that life as well as your business is a marathon, not a sprint. So it, you got to take the longer view mm. I tell them that you build your reputation on what you do every day in your life and you can ruin it on one bad decision. And you'll be tempted as the CEO of your company to make a bad decision based on the pressures you might have because things aren't going quite as well as you'd like them to go. So you have to think through that. So I try to articulate that so that, it, so that when those moments happen, that they'll stop, pause, and think it through. Mm. And there's a marathon, I tell them that even if this takes some 10, 12 years to realize their goals, there are going to be one or two others after that when you're 30 to 40 years old and think in those terms. And that's kind of how I try to mentor. I mean, the, the actual, what you would call the blocking and tackling, making sure they understand how to read a balance sheet and understanding leverage and all the things that you need to understand and recruiting key people underneath you in the business and how to delegate authority. All of these coaching attributes are things that obviously over time, I've had a lot of opportunity to get right and get wrong. So I try to learn from the get wrongs to then transfer to them and help them grow their businesses. That, that's kind of how I try to spend my time with these young folks, men and women. 
and and again emphasize to them that through their success comes my success mm. and that's how i make my living is through their successes take the long view and you know really focus on your reputation or doing the right thing as you say every day and and yeah. one just one quick bonus one favorite books that you read or give away to people then we'll let you go sir if any come to yeah. mind um the uh, malcolm glasswell book is the one uh, that i read numerous times uh, and i'm drawing a blank on the name but it, it in essence tells you that opportunity really changes your life but once you have that up like bill gates having the opportunity in the book to work at a timeshare company isn't just enough it's the fact that he had to spend 10 hours 10,000 hours um you know perfecting the software development that later enabled him to think about and develop microsoft mm. or the example in the book is hockey players in canada if you're born before september you get to join the hockey club which essence you have a 11 month advantage over other people born after september and the fact that a lot of those folks end up being pro hockey players right so th- th- those would be the um, and I'm, i don't Is know why outliers? i apologize outliers that's outliers it, yeah. yeah 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 my my favorite business book of all time and and i try to read it about every 7 8 years i pull it off my library shelf it's very easy read and uh it really has been a very good uh if you will cookbook for me to keep to stay humble and make sure i'm not passing over things that are important i love it well mr lubert thank you so much for your time as you can probably hear in the background i'm babysitting my two-year-old nephew today he's in town from <laughs> dubai so i apologize if there's any background noise uh we'll be sure to we'll be sure to edit it out thank you again sir it's been an honor thanks have a great day thank Take you care Thanks for listening to this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. To see video clips from this interview, please go to Instagram at Wrestling Changed My Life. This episode was proudly presented by Spartan Combat. The Spartan Combat Nationals are returning to Jacksonville, Florida, April 8th through the 10th, 2022. Register now at SpartanCombat.com.